This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of February 9, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 214 of Defender Radio. We regularly speak about the direct implications of actions against wildlife, from full-on culls to the trapping and disruption of family units. But there's a lot more happening in our country that's putting wildlife at risk, and not all of it is visible or obvious. This week, we're exploring the unintended consequences of human activities. Secondary poisoning is a serious concern, and the Wildlife Rescue Association of British Columbia deals with it regularly. We'll hear from Janelle Vanderbeek, who sees the consequences of poison used on rodents and how it impacts predatory birds and other animals. The hot topic in the oil sands right now is the truly frightening tailings ponds and their potential consequences for the ecosystems they're built in. We'll be joined by Dale Marshall of Environmental Defense Canada, one of the leading organizations fighting to uncover the truth about these eco-bombs waiting to happen. Let's get started. Janelle Vanderbeek, Care Center Coordinator for the Wildlife Rescue Association of BC, sees far too many owls, hawks, and other predatory birds come through the rehabilitation center's doors. And too often, they're seriously ill, a direct result of what's known as secondary poisoning. Janelle joined us recently to discuss secondary poisoning, why it's troublesome, and how residents can recognize it. What kinds of poisons are being used in British Columbia these days in terms of pest management? In terms of pest management, the most common ones, I mean, it's it's kind of tough to see from the animals that come in because we see the symptoms more than what was actually used to poison them. But the most ones that we see that we guess are um, the organophosphate fertilizers in birds, as well as there's a product called Avitrol out there that's a bird repellent that's for pigeons and starlings and finches and that kind of thing. Um, as well as antifreeze and rat poison in mammals. People are actually using antifreeze as a poison still. I mean, I know, I, I've heard the horror stories of dogs getting into it uh, because it's sweet. Yeah, we, we actually had a call a, a year or two ago, I believe, about someone who was live trapping squirrels and putting antifreeze in the cage so that they would poison themselves. Wow. Well, I'm not going to ask you why someone would do that because we need a clinical psychologist for that. Yeah. No, it's, there's, there's some horror stories that you just, you, just people are people. You yeah. never know why. Um, so why, why are people using poison these days? I mean, I, I understand that there, there's conflict, especially with small mammals, uh, for farmers and things. But when we live in a more urban society kind of as a whole, why are we seeing this around our, our urban centers and our suburbs? In the urban centers, the main target for the poisons is rats. Um, rats and mice, mostly. We actually had a call, I believe, this morning or yesterday about a um, strata complex that has been spreading poison not just inside of their building because they have a mouse problem, but also outside. And one of the um, residents of the area was actually asking whether this is legal or not. And unfortunately, we couldn't say this is illegal, you have to get them to stop because it's not illegal, but they're spreading it outdoors as well. And their target is the mice, but they don't understand that it's it's not target specific. Any animal might come up and 
take that poison. Yeah, and that's um, that I think is sort of the obvious first step. But something that we've been seeing more and more talked about is this concept of secondary poisoning. Could you explain what that is? So secondary poisoning is if your poison gets into the target species, so a mouse or a rat, and that mouse or rat, as it is dying, becomes an attractive um, target for an owl or a predatory species. So we did actually get, in 2014, two different owls in a great horned owl and a pygmy owl that both succumbed to secondary poisoning because it's not likely that they themselves would have eaten the poison. That's not an attractive target for them but they would have eaten the mice that ate the poison and become affected with the same symptoms that the mouse had had um, due to that poison. Now, uh, with my rudimentary understanding of biology, I would think, and, I, and I, I'm quite sure this is probably something the general public thinks, that if it's a, a, a mouse or a rat poison, it wouldn't affect a bird, especially a large bird like a great horned owl. It has similar, I'm not completely sure of the workings of rat poison or mouse poison directly, but I believe it dehydrates very severely, um, and that acts regardless of um, species, regardless of whether you're a mammal or you're a bird. So that will, because it has affected the mouse already, it will affect the birds as well. And it's not just owls that eat mice. There are a plethora of different kinds of birds that eat mice. Just owls are the ones that we've seen it in. Mm -hmm. And it's, I would imagine this also applies for uh, uh, carnivores from raccoons up to... Uh coyotes exactly we've yeah we've had about five different raccoons in that we're not sure with the raccoons whether it's them eating the poison directly or them eating the mice eating the poison but in 2014 we had five raccoons in that were suspected poisoning cases and it could have been due to secondary poison it could have been a mix of the two they had poisoned themselves and ate a nice little tasty meal that was lying there for them that had mm. been poisoned uh, now, is there any kind of education that goes on, to your knowledge, in British Columbia regarding uh, poison, secondary poisoning, and all of these issues surrounding it? Um, not that I'm aware of. Um, what we do when, everyone, when anyone calls with questions about poison is we'll refer them to a licensed pet control company. And we have a few humane pet control companies that we refer that know what they're doing and know what they're using when they're using these poisons. Um, and make sure that they're not used unnecessarily, especially outdoors. Any poisons used indoors are likely to target the mice or anything that's in your house. As soon as it's outdoors, you're getting all the squirrels, the mice that are native mice, um, voles and moles and anything like that that will go for those poisons. Um, and how do you identify secondary poisoning? You said uh, suspected secondary poisoning, and I imagine this this is a, a common problem for all of us in wildlife advocacy in some regard, is we can't afford the testing on some of this stuff. Um, for us, it's testing DNA to find out origin of fur. Um, for you folks, it's probably the poisoning. So what are the symptoms? Uh, and we'll, we'll discuss birds again. I know that's that's one of the specialties of wildlife rescue. So uh, what are the symptoms you see in these birds of prey that come in? Um, a lot of the times when we're getting calls uh, about birds on the phone that we're trying to figure out if they're poisoned or not, it's because they're acting like they're drunk. Um, so they'll be flying not in a straight line. They'll kind of be falling over, be wobbly as they're walking. Um, when they come in, quite often they are very critical when they come in because they've been on the ground and they've been convulsing. Um, because they're bleeding generally from their mouths or um, from their rear um, or from their nose as well. So it's it varies from case to case, but 
but those are often the symptoms that we see. And that would be internal hemorrhaging causing that blood loss. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, I, I don't know how to follow that up. That's 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 quite shocking to me. I didn't understand that yeah. it was so and so violent. It is so violent, and there's so many. We had about 25 um, cases altogether. I looked up some of our stats in 2014 of suspected poisoning. Um, 16 of them were mammals, and nine of them were birds. But I believe only six of those were actually rehabilitated and released into the wild, and some of those actually came in as um, dead-on-arrival animals because it's such a uh, um, act-quickly kind of thing. You have to get um, the remedies in them as soon as possible so that you can counteract the poison. So it is, it's, it's, I, I don't know what you would call, but effectively an anti-poison that you use in addition to, to fluids and things like that to treat it? Yeah, exactly. Well, just like they do in people um, who have overdosed, we'll put some charcoal in them, a very specific mix of charcoal that will to soak up any of the poison that's still in their stomach so that they're not going to get more effects of the poison as hopefully the poison that they've already got into their system. The stuff that's already in their system, there's, we can give them fluids and we can do as much as we can with medication to counteract. Um, but we first thing we do is pump some charcoal into their stomach to soak up any extra poison that might be in there. Mm-hmm. And what should people do? I mean, if if they see an animal and they think it, it it fits the description you've given of kind of drunk, not flying straight, falling over, or maybe convulsing, what should your your average uh, resident do if they see an animal in distress like this? Because these animals are quite often squirrels and owls and animals that are a little bit more um, dangerous to handle that you don't really want to be picking up, um, we suggest calling the wildlife rescue as soon as you can. Um, the nearest one to you just Google it. It's usually quite easy to find um, where there is a wildlife rescue close to you, and they'll give you advice as to what to do. Otherwise, if there is no wildlife rescue close to you, um, try calling your veterinarian and seeing if they can give you a hand. But definitely a licensed wildlife rehabilitator is going to know the best how to, how to work this situation. To learn more about the Wildlife Rescue Association of BC, visit wildliferescue.ca. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride, Find out more at arrivealive.org. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. You may have seen the headlines. 
Canada's leadership blocks a NAFTA attempt to investigate tailings pond leaks in Alberta. To those who have been watching this development, it's big, scary news. And that's because the possible consequences of leaking tailing ponds could echo throughout our ecosystems for generations. To bring us up to date on the tailings ponds issue, we were joined by Dale Marshall, National Program Manager at Environmental Defence Canada. To get started, could you explain what a tailing pond is for those who don't know? Sure. Um, well, I mean, basically, uh, it, the process to create oil from the tar sands involves using a lot of water. You have to the, the tar sands companies have to separate the um, the bitumen, uh, which becomes oil, from the the sand and clay. So there's, um, you know, about three barrels of water that are used for every barrel of oil that's, that's produced. And so basically you end up with a lot of wastewater that's contaminated. And what this water, where this water is put is they're put into these large, these, you know, they're called ponds, but they're, they're much, much larger than any, um, anything that you and I would think was a pond. I mean, these are like massive lakes of, contaminated water um, and so what the what tar sands companies do is when they when they mine when they when they dig a mine they use the extra sand um, to that to just create kind of a basin that then they put all of the wastewater into um, so you end up with massive lakes of contaminated water essentially that are in some cases very close to um, a freshwater source like the Athabasca River. Okay, and what is the contamination? Is it is it from the bitumen? Is it from the equipment or chemicals that are also used in the process? Like what what is wrong with that water? Yeah, it's it's all of those things. So it's um, you know you end up with a number of heavy metals that are in um, that are in this, the the soil when it's dug up. Uh, you end up with um, uh, some fairly um, potent, uh, fairly toxic um, organic chemicals um, like naphthalene acids, um, and so and all of that together means that you essentially have a toxic brew of a, a number of of chemicals that are can have impacts on on fish and other wildlife. All right, and. Um... Obviously, the, the issue uh, outside of simply having these ponds is that they're leaking. And as you said, they can be next to uh, fresh water basins. The Athabasca River is uh, an absolutely huge, vital water resource uh, in the area. So how are they leaking? I mean, I, I you know, my initial reaction, not knowing a lot about the subject, is if we can put a guy on the moon, we should be able to keep some water in a pond. Yeah, well, the, but the, the the way that these ponds are created, because because the um, um, essentially the structure is simply a sand structure, uh, it means that the the water um, leaks through um, and out and down um, um, from those tailings ponds. I mean, this and this is an issue that's actually quite well documented. I mean, Environment Canada has done studies showing. That these are leaking, um, they're, they're, we have documentation from from the um, industry themselves, essentially saying that these tailings ponds are leaking. We have um, evidence in Parliament 
um, you know, presentations to the Environment Committee that show that essentially these these tailings ponds are leaking. I mean, if they if they were to make them, they could make them completely seal proof if they wanted to, but that would that would mean creating a massive lake with an actual an impermeable substance like some kind of concrete or something like making it into the biggest swimming pool you've ever seen. Um, but that would cost too much. So that's not the way tailings ponds are made. Um, and so you, you know, you naturally have a lot of leaking, uh, especially since given that there's a lot of water being used, um, the, the amount of water, you know, even one tailings pond will take a million liters of water a day. Um, it's huge. Um, and so, um, it, you know, the, I have talked I've talked to an, a conservation officer in Alberta who says, essentially that these ponds are designed to leak because if they didn't, um, um, they would accumulate water too quickly uh, and they'd have to be even bigger than they are. Wow. Um, now, the the big news in the last couple of months has been uh, that the environmental watchdog, is the term going around, from the North America Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, is saying they want to investigate these tailings ponds and the leaks. Um, wh- what is their goal or why do they want to investigate this what why is there a a sort of a international organization saying we need to look at this well we i mean environmental defense actually brought this case to the commission for environmental cooperation um so us there was a a a u.s based organization um called natural resources defense um council as well as three individuals who live in that region um, we brought this case to the, the, the commission to ask them to look into it. Um, and they did do a preliminary investigation and found, you know, and we of course presented them with the evidence that I talked about before, um, that there was, that, you know, it was quite likely that there were some serious, um, leaking issues, um, and that Environment Canada was ignoring that, um, violating, um, certain environmental laws in Canada. And when the commission looked into it, they basically found that the evidence was was compelling enough that they wanted to do a deeper investigation. This, so this is what they call a factual record. So they ruled we're going to do a factual record to to really look into this more deeply. Um, and that was what was voted against by all three NAFTA countries. Um, so Canada, um, the U.S., and Mexico all voted against the the Commission for Environmental Cooperation doing a, a deeper investigation into this issue and whether Canada was Canada was essentially ignoring its own environmental laws. Now that seems odd because this is a commission that is formed on the basis of cooperation between these three countries. So why, and I suppose uh, I understand why Canada may not want it given our current political track record, but why would other countries not want this looked at? I mean, it it seems like a very serious and critical issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it, it's hard to know exactly um, why um, the other countries voted against. Um, Mexico, in particular, voted with Canada. The U.S. is um, when they their arguments that the U.S. Uh, um, used were essentially they didn't seem very convinced by the. Con- Canadian argument. Canada was essentially saying that there's a pending court case that needs to be resolved before the, that can go forward. Now we know already that 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 
you know, what they call the pending judicial um, hearing had already been completed. It, it ended last February, a year ago. Um, the appeal period ended in August. So that court case was completely done. But that continued to be Canada, the Canadian government's rationale for voting against this, that the commission had no right to investigate this while there, this court case, which was over, was continuing. Um, somehow Canada um, convinced Mexico to vote with it. Um, and the U.S. did as well, but the U.S. said that, you know, in, in its statement, it essentially said, we're not, conv- we're not entirely convinced of this argument, but we'll give Canada the benefit of the doubt. This is a political question, but um, and, and it may require some speculation, but when I look at issues that I've been tracking, for instance, the spring bear hunts in Ontario, uh, the wolf kills in BC and Alberta, things like that where the government's own scientists are saying what you're proposing will not work. It will not do what you want it to do. If anything, it'll be a stopgap measure and the problem will persist. And the government says, well, our people said we have to do it. So to me, it's like it, I, I was banging my head against the wall trying to figure out why the media is not picking up on that more. But is that a, a cultural thing now happening at the federal level when it comes to environmental and legal issues? Well, I would say that there's, this is a definite trend that's happening. Um, so the Commission for Environment Cooperation was created when NAFTA was created 20 years, no, now it's more than 20 years ago. Um, for most of that time, uh, there were very few cases that were, that were voted against in, um, in terms of the, the, the Commission suggesting that it would t- undertake this factual record. Over the last year, so only twice in 20 years that, that was a factual record voted against. But now it's happened three more times in the last year. So, so, um, so essentially the countries, of course, Canada included, um, are, have really taken a different approach to the commission, um, and really stifled any kind of, as you say, cooperation in terms of, you know, these investigations looking into whether, um, laws are being broken and the, and, and the governments are upholding those laws. Now, Canada's had a, not a very good record, to be honest. The Canadian government has not had a good environmental record on a number of issues. Um, tailings ponds leaking is certainly one of them. Um, but, and, um, and I'd say that other energy-related issues, such as climate change, um, have also, uh, you know, the Canadian government's shown itself to, to have quite a poor record there as well. And it just seems, it really does seem to be um, a culture of, we're going to we're going to give the energy companies a pass no matter what, um, as opposed to, you know, let's let's actually make sure that we're, you know, protecting our local environment in terms of our lakes and rivers and 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 forests and wildlife, or the global environment when it comes to things like climate change. It really sounds like uh, politics uh, with a K, overwhelming common sense. Um, now, if we move forward and say, uh, hypothetically, that nothing is done about these ponds in the near future, and they continue on course. What are we looking at for our ecosystem and for the animals uh, in a big picture way? Well, I mean, the, the biggest impact, of course, is on the, the species that are found in, uh, in lakes and rivers that are, that are uh, receiving these contaminants. 
um, you know, there there are documented cases cases of, of fish with lesions um, in that area because of the because of the contamination. Um, and we know basically that when you have any kind of um, organic chemical, um, these are um, these are chemicals that tend to bio um, accumulate in in uh, species, and they tend to biomagnify as you go up the food chain. Now, I haven't, I have not seen any um, actual peer-reviewed research that sh that is showing that those chemicals are ending up um, in, for example, terrestrial animals. Um, but it would be it would be hard to believe that that was not happening, given the contamination that's happening um, in the rivers, given the impacts that we're seeing already on fish. Uh, and the fact that, of course, there are a lot of um, terrestrial animals in that, in that area that, that would be eating that fish. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's having an impact. And of course, the you know the the other the other big concern is has to do with the impact that it has on people who are who are um, uh, relying on the water for their water source and relying on the fish for their food. Um, that that's another um, important impact that's that's being felt downstream, and not surprisingly, not surprisingly, there are populations there that are um, quite concerned. It is uh, quite concerning, and even without peer-reviewed journals at this point, so I mean, it 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 takes grade nine biology to understand that level of the food chain, right? Uh, you know, you get sick water, you get sick fish, you get sick animals, you get sick people. Um, now, what what can people do? I guess that's maybe the penultimate question at this time: is our government is playing ostrich uh, for the sake of economics? So what can average Canadians uh, and international people do to try and get something done about this issue? Well, I mean, I think, I think um, continuing to put pressure on, on the government is an important aspect of this. And, of course, that's what we're going to continue to do um, for people to, um, to, uh, to contact their local MP, to put write letters to the, new, to their, um, to the newspaper, to discuss this issue um, and to, you know, to to demand that the that the federal government take responsibility for its for its responsibilities, right? For to protect people, to protect rivers, um, to protect to protect ecosystems. I mean, these these are the things that are written into Canadian law that that the federal government is ignoring. Um, so we're going to we're going to continue to to apply that pressure, and we're going to continue to raise the issue, um, and hopefully there will be um, there will be um, you know different parties who will have different um, uh, approaches to environmental protection um, that can that can uh, also um, move the Canadian government in a different direction. To learn more about the work of Environmental Defense Canada, visit www.environmentaldefense.ca. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our guests, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control, for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.